0: Turn with me in your Bibles today again to Titus chapter 3. This is the second last sermon from this letter of Paul to Titus. Titus is an ongoing balance between doctrine, that is, what is true, and duty, what to do. This is what's true. In Titus 2.11 it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. That's doctrine. That's true. What to do is how we respond to God's glorious grace. His grace. We've learned already that divine grace is God's unmerited favor towards sinners who deserve only wrath and judgment. Yet he pours out his grace on us. So therefore, brothers and sisters, we do not react to God's commands. We do not respond to God's commands out of guilt. Guilt is washed away in Christ on the cross for us. We do not react to God out of fear. Fear is gone because Christ has taken on himself all the punishment we could ever deserve. We react to God based on gratitude. A response to this divine grace that has been so wonderfully displayed for us in Paul's letter Titus. Now we come to verses 3 through 8. Probably one of the clearest pictures of salvation in the whole Bible. If You want to know what does Redeemer believe about the gospel? What Paul says here to Titus. Hear God's word. Titus 3 verses 3 through 8. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for the good news. And it's only good news because you do it. Thank you. In Jesus' name, change us. Amen. We are heirs of grace. You are an heir of grace. What is an heir? I want you to think about this for a moment. What is an heir? Well, officially, the definition goes, an heir is one who inherits or is entitled to inherit property. Another way of putting it is an heir is one who inherits or is entitled to succeed to a hereditary rank, title, or office. An heir is one who receives or is entitled to receive some endowment or quality from a parent or a predecessor. An heir is a person who inherits or is entitled by law or by the terms of a will to inherit the estate of another. One who receives or is expected to receive a heritage As of ideas from a predecessor. Do you notice what is clearly missing from the definition of an heir? That the heir somehow deserves it. Or that it's because of the heir's goodness that they receive an inheritance. In fact, when you think about an heir, who comes to mind? How did they become an heir? Who's the giver? Who's the one who made them an heir? And ultimately, while the focus and the goal of salvation is to make us heirs of grace, what it causes, in effect, is a display of God's glory, because he's the giver. And the bankruptcy that you and I possess as fallen people, apart from Christ, is all the more the backdrop against this beautiful grace that God shows, making us, of all people, the most undeserving heirs of grace. See, the kind of people that we are to be is totally dependent on the work of God to save us. This passage contains one of the fullest statements about salvation in the entire Bible. Yes, it's instructional by nature. But this instruction will change your life if you really stop and let it soak in. If you really do the full connection with what this means, if God has done this, in all that entails, it will utterly change your perspective. It'll be like being born again again. Maybe you've trusted Christ a long time, but have always held this little bit of your own autonomy with it. Well, this passage and passages like it will, will bring us to a wonderful humility about what it took to save me, to save you. And it will change you. There are six ingredients to salvation listed here in the passage. Follow with me as we walk through verses 3 through 8. Again, one of the fullest statements about salvation in the entire Bible. Maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. Uh, Here is the statement about how how you can come to know Christ. Uh, If you're wondering how you came to Christ, this will show you how you have come to Christ. Here, first, the need of salvation so clearly illustrated. Why is salvation necessary? In verse 3, it says and displays something about us in our fallen state. Now, you may say, well, I didn't live this way. I always grew up in the church. True, but uh, That may be true, but all of us have the seeds of this in our fallenness and wouldn't have come to full fruition of it had God not interceded. So it does apply to all of us. Some of you have lived it and do understand it vividly. Verse 3 says, for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The picture of verse 3 is a picture of the person apart from Christ who is living in futility, uselessness, passing days in malice. Now, when I say we need salvation, I have to recognize that in our day, most people don't really recognize why we use the term salvation so much. Well, what are saved from what? Because modern man feels pretty safe and pretty secure. The idea of needing save, saving is somewhat foreign. It's kind, of, it's kind of like that caricature of the old gospel preachers telling you need to be saved. And, and people got to have that picture of the guy in the white suit up there and, you know, asking for your money and, and going, you know, the Steve Martin picture of a preacher, if you know what I'm talking about. But saved is something we have to take into account and be honest about. The holiness of God, which we recognize, and then who we really are in the pit of our being. Not what culture says is okay, but who we really know in the quietness and the the aloneness of our minds and hearts, who we really are in the darkness therein, apart from Christ. In fact, I don't think you have to look long to see these traits displayed in culture and humanity in our own selves. I'll look at the different words used. Foolish, which means darkened to wisdom. Spiritually dead is the way Ephesians 2 puts it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, disobedient or rebellious. Uh, bucking authority. Not submissive to any authority structure. Led astray, that is deceived. Enslaved. It's, you know, slavery is not a good picture. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. The addict who can never say no to the thing that he or she knows is destroying them. Haters. We're haters apart from Christ. We see salvation is necessary because we stand condemned, identified by all these traits. The need of salvation, why it is necessary, we are desperately lost and wicked sinners as displayed by this verse, verse 3. Does anyone really doubt the lostness and depravity of man? Just this week, if you just did a little search of the news items, There's a police officer who's being accused of killing his wife. They have not found her yet, but he is accused of killing her. And they have good reason to believe this is possibly the case because of people seeing him trying to dispose of the body. But then also, he probably killed one of his other wives, as it turns out. And it it sounds like a movie, but this is real life. This is really what's happening. In the same week, there's... This young woman in Kansas who lived this secret life of internet porn now is shown up or shown to be dead, killed violently here in our own state, just not too many miles away. Just the details about it alone show us depravity. You know, a football player was killed earlier this week. Four people have been arrested. They think it was for some former debt or something that was done years ago. And he dies over this matter. Go on and on. You know how depressing it is to look at news items. Why is it that man would somehow still hold out to the ultimate lie that man is somehow inherently good? He is not even remo- we are not remotely close to good. And this one person says to the believer who has trusted in Christ, as bad as you think you are, don't worry, because you're worse than that. You just don't even have a picture of how bad it really is. And so the desperate picture of the need for salvation is painted for us in this first verse, verse 3. Why is salvation necessary? We are desperately lost and wicked sinners. Every one of us knows it in the core of our beings. Don't let the robe fool you. I'm as desperately lost and wicked as you, apart from Christ. So then, what is the source of salvation? Look at verse 4. If we need salvation, where can we get it? Where does it come from? Where can we be rescued from this wickedness? Verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. The source of salvation, very simply, cannot be us. How on earth can it be us when we're dead in our trespasses and sins? It doesn't say in Ephesians 2 we're sick or maimed or injured in our trespasses and sins. It says we're dead. This passage says we're foolish. We're darkened to any kind of wisdom. We're rebellious. We're deceived. We're enslaved. Slaves cannot free themselves. Where does salvation then originate if it is possible at all? It has to come from God. Haters don't suddenly love on their own. Fools don't all of a sudden become enlivened on their own. Being dead means being unable to originate salvation. This is so critical, brothers and sisters, to a proper understanding of how we're saved and of God, for that matter. The source of salvation is God and God alone. God must save and thou alone. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior Appeared, or it was revealed. The coming of Christ Himself shows us His originating salvation. Kindness, love, mercy of God. God, the source of salvation, the sole source of salvation. Our need is because we are desperately lost and wicked. The source for salvation is God. It comes from Him and Him alone. What, therefore, are the grounds of salvation? If He uh originates salvation. On what basis can He save us? He can't just overlook our wickedness to keep this eternal offense against Himself forever. Uh, There has to be a ground to save us. He originates it, but what does it rest upon? Verse 5 tells us, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. So erase any idea that you have somehow uh, endeared yourself to God. Erase the idea that you chose this. Uh, your choosing this is simply an evidence that God has born you again as it said it's not the mechanism he needs to save you or we're in trouble because a dead person can't choose so we bring nothing to him it's by his righteousness not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the holy spirit verse 6 whom he poured out us on us richly through jesus christ our savior Please notice, the grounds of salvation is not our righteousness. We have none. It's not based on anything we've done. We can't do anything as dead, enslaved, foolish people. It's based on God's mercy to us. And how is his mercy evidenced? By Christ coming and pouring himself out for us. He doesn't just say he's merciful. He shows he is merciful by sending Christ. The grounds for your salvation is the finished work of Christ done in mercy for you. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. No other ground, in all other ground, is sinking sand. Christ, the grounds of salvation. That's what it rests on. God's mercy shown in Christ towards us. Notice the wording. Washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ. And any time you see in the Scripture, especially as it relates to in Paul's writings, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, he's speaking of through the mediatorial work of Christ, through his obedience to death on the cross, through his atonement, pay for us. He poured out the salvation on us through Christ, our Savior, the one who did this work for us. God then sends his spirit to regenerate us. Notice the work of the Trinity here. You have God who loves us and originates salvation. He sends his only son who dies on the cross for us. And then he sends the father and the son, send the spirit to apply the work of Christ. So God loves us, sends his son, and then the father and the son send the spirit to apply the work of Christ to us. Not just something that happened 2,000 years ago and's out there and it's an inspiring story. No, that work was dynamic and the Holy Spirit applies it to you today and continues to do so. Applying it to people. He calls them to himself. What has caused God to give His son for us? Verse 4 says his loving kindness. Verse 5, his mercy. We need salvation. God originates it. He provides it through Christ's work on the cross. Look at verse 5 as we see now the means of salvation. More on how it comes to us. How it actually is made real in our life. The ministry of God the Spirit. Verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Notice how He does it now. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the work of the Spirit involves washing, regeneration, renewal. A dead person made alive, that's regeneration. And the washing, uh, it's pictured in baptism. This washing away of our sins. That's, that's what baptism pictures, this spiritual reality pictured by this sign that we do. Uh, but don't lose sight of what it is to wash something and make it clean. And the Spirit of God is the agent of God's salvation. Who does it? Serving the Father, serving the Son in his tremendously active, regularly active, saving, delivering, enabling people to walk according to God's word. It says we are justified by his grace. But this washing, this regeneration, this renewal of the Holy Spirit, let's not lose sight of this active work in the life of one who comes to Christ. If you hear these words and they resonate with you and you say, that's me, that's, I see what God's done. That's the Holy Spirit giving you eyes to see it. That's a supernatural thing. The reason why two people can be sitting there and hear the same message, one get it and one doesn't — is because the Holy Spirit has quickened one, has alivened one, has enabled one. It's not because they're intellectually different, or there's some other difference that makes it impossible for one to hear and the other to hear. It's because they're both dead, one's been made alive. And frankly, it's quite offensive to the one who's still dead, because they don't think they're dead. They don't think they need saving. They think, that, "Hey, I'm here. I mean, I'm sitting in church. Don't tell me I need to be saved. And the stark difference in one's perspective is totally reliant upon whether the Spirit of God has enlivened one or not. By the way, that's why I have such confidence in the ministry. Because I know it's not directly related to any great ability I have. It's the Spirit of God that will open your eyes as His message goes forth. The means of salvation, how it comes to us, is by the Holy Spirit the agent of regeneration. But what is the goal of salvation? All of this, we we see the need, we see the source, we see the grounds, the means, the Holy Spirit applying the work of Christ. What's the ultimate goal here? Well, what it leads to is to make us heirs, which ultimately will bring glory to the heir maker, God himself. Ultimately, the goal of salvation is the glory of God. Specifically applied to us, it's making us heirs together with Christ, We're heirs of grace. Look at verse 7. So that being justified, that is, made uh, innocent before the Father, accepted by the Father now, that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here again, not only do you see the Trinity at work, but you also see salvation past, present, and future. Uh, It's not just that we're saved now, but by the work Christ did then, but we have a hope of eternal life. The goal of salvation is to make you an heir, to make us heirs, to bring glory to God. This gives us joy for looking forward to our full inheritance. It's a stance uh, as an heir that creates a transformed, uh, motivated, compelled life, looking forward to what will ultimately be true. You have it now, but it's it's going to come in its fullest extent in the future. It's a foretaste of grace, if you will. We are heirs together with Christ now because he has purchased this for us on the cross. Heirs are beneficiaries, but recognize that the credit is not due to them. Rather, to the one who gives. The goal of salvation, what it leads to, it makes us heirs. What's the evidence of salvation captured here in these uh, packed verses? Verse 8 says, or gives us insight to the evidence of salvation... The saying is trustworthy. Paul uses this in Timothy as well. The saying is trustworthy, in verses 3-7 in particular. And I want you to insist on these things, he says to Titus, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is a huge pastoral cue as to what we ought to be about in preaching a message. When Paul stops to tell Titus, I want you to insist this, I sort of gather that there will be opposition to this. In other words, this will be something that won't be easy to preach. It's something that you're going to have to insist upon because people probably say, yeah, 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 or they'll say, that's not true. So Titus insist upon this. And I take that very personally. Although I've always appreciated the great receptivity we've had, especially in this church and this country, to the doctrines of grace as the Scripture lays them out, I have come to get enough feedback to know that not everybody likes this message. Not everybody likes taking man off the throne. Not everybody likes to be called a sinner or to be equated with this list of things in, chat in verse 3. So I really have been renewed and actually the feedback after the first sermon I did on Titus 2, 11 through 15 proved to me I need to preach it more because it changes us in every way possible. The evidence of salvation comes from a correct understanding Of who saves. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The reason you preach this gospel message, Titus, is because this will propel, compel, enable the people of God to live as God would have them. He doesn't say guilt them into it or make them scared. Teach grace. Teach how it is that God saves. And this will be the thing that changes them. This will be the thing that will bring my glory to the world. These things are excellent and profitable for people. People will benefit from this. They will grow because of this. They will be devoted to good works for the right reasons. You can count on it is what it means by trustworthy. Grace motivation is the way people change. These truths will show their fruit in the lives of people who are regenerated, just as described. So that they may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And the same Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, who saved you, continues to work to sanctify you. The Holy Spirit does it to save you, apply the work of Christ, and then back off. The Holy Spirit stays intrusively in your life, reminding you of the love of God for you. Reminding you in times of rebellion of God calling to you His child to be who you are, the child of God. Good works, therefore, are not the grounds for salvation. The work of Christ is. But they are necessary fruit and evidence of true salvation. Very simply, we see in this passage before us the need of salvation. We're desperately lost. The source of salvation, it's from God. It's by what God has done and chosen to do. The grounds of salvation is Christ's work on the cross for us, uh, bore up in the mercy of God to us. The means of salvation comes by the Holy Spirit's applying of the work of Christ. The goal of salvation is to make us heirs of grace, which will bring glory to God, the heir maker. And the evidence of salvation is how it changes your life when you grasp these realities and start to obey out of gratitude. This passage speaks to us, brothers and sisters, in a simple way, but a powerful way. It's a message that needs to be revived in the church and preached consistently and constantly and all the time, in your homes, in your workplace, in your school, and here, of course. These truths make me stand in awe of God and lead me to a deeper worship of Him. They make me marvel at my own salvation. They make me alert to my man-centered Substitutes that are not really God, good news at all. They make me confident that the work which God planned to begin, He will finish both globally and personally. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for this message of the gospel. I thank you for what you have done. I thank you that when we put them together, all these things together, you get the glory and we get the joy. I praise you for this. And ask that you would not leave one person unchanged having heard this message again today. In Jesus' name, amen.